Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual double-header today. In moments, Guardian columnist Aditya Chakraborty will do the post-mortem, a term that seems sadly appropriate, on last week's British election. And then Nathan Robinson will lay out the irresistible appeal of socialism. British voters handed a giant victory to Boris Johnson and his Conservative Party in the December 12th election. The Labour Party, whose prospects seemed shimmeringly bright a couple of years ago, experienced its worst defeat in decades. What happened? Why did a party led by a vicious and bigoted upper-class twit, which has imposed nearly a decade of austerity on the people of Britain, enjoy such an electoral reward? What was the role of Brexit? Here's Aditya Chakraborty, a columnist and senior economic commentator for The Guardian, with some answers. Well, everybody's doing the postmortems. you know, the five reasons that Labour lost. Uh, what would be on your list? I genuinely think that Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, and the left in Britain underestimated the scale of the challenge that they faced in getting anywhere near elected this year. So what you're seeing at the moment is is a kind of shock of people who thought that even if they weren't going to win this one, they'd be close enough that the next one wouldn't be far off. And you've also got a kind of Westminster cadre of politicians and people who think politically who have been detached from voters for a very long time. Whatever their flavour of politics, whether they're Tony Blair's New Labour, the equivalent of Bill Clinton's New Democrats, or they're Jeremy Corbyn's Socialist, the equivalent of Bernie Sanders's group, I, I guess, both of them are fundamentally metropolitan creations who have struggled significantly to talk to the kind of voters who rejected them en masse at this election. Um, And I would say that is between those two reasons, you've got pretty much everything you need to understand what's just happened. How much of the personality of Corbyn figure into it? Ah, Loads. Look, uh, just for the benefit of anyone who's who's not au fait with what's just happened in Britain, you effectively had the kind of epochal battle between left and right, between barbarism and socialism, that people across Europe and and, and I guess across uh, America kind of talk about in their own countries. So on the one hand, you had Jeremy Corbyn, uh, a 70-year-old, North London living, vegetarian, allotment dwelling. He makes his own jam, famously, uh, and he likes to relax in the evening by wearing uh, tracksuit bottoms and tops. And on the other side, you've got Boris Johnson... An old Etonian, so from number one school in in Britain, cost a lot of money to go there, uh, somewhere like $60,000 for just one year. So you've got an old Etonian who has been a newspaper columnist for most of his life, belatedly took an interest in becoming a professional politician and was supposedly what his own party called a Heineken conservative, which is a a right-winger who could reach the parts of the electorate that other right-wingers couldn't reach. So he was socially liberal, seemed like one of us, a joker, often to be seen on comedy shows and game shows and that kind of thing. You also had an election contest in Britain after nine years of conservative-dominated government. Nine years in which public services in this country have been stripped to the bone under austerity and a right-wing party that wanted to use the Brexit referendum and the vote for Brexit, the narrow 
uh, vote for Brexit in that uh, referendum to push through a vast deregulation of the British state, to turn it into, uh, in, the, in the phrase of one of the politicians involved, to turn it into Singapore upon Thames. So open all hours to, to money from around the world, no questions asked, no real need for workers' rights, or at least a bare minimum of them, and much less interested in, in Europe and European social democracy than in Trump's America, doing trade deals with Trump, and perhaps making our politics a bit more Trump-like. And that was the battle. So you could not ask for more a more stark contrast between the two sides going into this election. You would think after all those years of austerity that people would uh, want some kind of relief from it, which is what Corbyn promised. But uh, what uh, prompted them all to uh, tick the uh, the Tory box? Okay, I mean, I think that's kind of the one of the big questions that that, that needs to be addressed after this election. I think we've got to understand two things about this election. First of all, it followed hard on the heels of 2017. Britain under law is meant to have an election, a parliamentary general election of the kind we just had once every five years. We've just had three general elections within the course of four years. So we've been through and you chuck in two uh, referenda, one on Brexit and one on whether Scotland should go independent. So it's a country that's punch drunk from voting and from politicians appearing on screen asking for their vote. But in 2017, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, uh, a party that he'd been in charge of for only two years at that point, and he'd already been under huge attack from both the press and from uh, backbenchers in his own parliamentary party, Jeremy Corbyn somehow managed to turn what looked like an absolute certain defeat uh, at the hands of Conservatives to almost, almost uh, beating the Conservative Party on an anti-austerity platform. Then two years later, you have this absolutely stunning landslide victory for the Conservatives. Part of what's gone wrong for the Labour Party, for, for, for left-wing politics in this country, is after 2017 near-miss, if you like, it was almost as if they thought that gave them carte blanche to really get radical now. It wasn't enough just to offer them at the electorate moderate social democracy, a bit more public spending, a little bit more in taxes, perhaps take some utilities under public control. All of a sudden, they were moving into talking about vast decarbonising of the economy within almost impossible time limits. The base of the party voted at their last conference to decarbonise the entire UK economy by 2030, a target which is laughably unachievable. The base of the party had been talking about things like a four-day week, so moving the working week from five days to four, which, to be honest, would be within kind of honourable labour traditions of reducing the amount of hours that people work. But this was just chucked out there as an aspiration for the Labour Party. There was a talk about a Green New Deal, which was a slogan that then became a vague aspiration and never really moved into becoming a programme that would provide tangible benefits. So essentially, to be on the left in British politics and to have any kind of pessimism about how much the electorate would take of this stuff has been a, has been a very frustrating position. Because you've just spent two years watching Her Majesty's opposition offer all kinds of things to the electorate make no argument for any of them, so not engage in even the, the most minimal degree of uh, p- political salesmanship for them, and then just print them all up 
into a manifesto, which sprawled to something like 200 electoral promises, some of which they had costed so they could show where the money was coming from, others of which you had no idea. So to give you one example, um, it's, a, it's a facet now of British uh, politics that any kind of promise that you make to the public, you've got to show exactly where the money's coming from. And Labour did that very effectively in 2017. And it did it again in 2019. It produced a, quite a bulky manifesto this time. And uh, they produced what they called a grey book with a kind of, that was kind of an appendix showing how all the sums were, or, would add up. When it looked like their polls were dipping, because their poll ratings did not recover after them, that manifesto, they thought they'd just chuck out another policy on top of it. So they offered women near retirement age something in the region of $85 billion dollars to make sure that women could retire at the at the old age of 65 uh, and that they wouldn't lose out on their pensions. There was no idea where this money would come from. There was no attempt to hide the fact it was just blatantly a bung. It was a bribe being offered to people. And then when that didn't turn around their poll ratings, a few days later, they offered up to the public we're going to give everyone, every primary school child, every child under the age of 11, that is, in Britain, we're going to make sure they get free school meals, free school breakfasts. There is nothing wrong with making these pledges. There is something very badly wrong in just chucking them out, left, right and centre, at a public that's already been beaten over the head for nine years, uh, being told that, that, that Britain can no longer afford to pay for basic things like healthcare, schooling, even a wage rise. But that effectively was the, was the ridiculous, contorted situation that the Labour Party ended up in at this election. And, and I can tell you from personal experience, I spent, I spent the past few weeks in election campaign going around with Labour candidates as they went door knocking uh, on, on voters' doors to try and convince them to turn out for the party. And I went to places where... Labour should, by rights, by, by, on historical grounds, should have been able to bank up these votes, should have been able to say, we've got that seat, that seat's absolutely safe under us. And instead, they were turning up, and first, a typical conversation would go with a voter, oh, I'm really disappointed about your position on Brexit, because a lot of uh, traditional Labour voters in traditional Labour constituencies actually voted for, for the UK to leave the EU. Then they would say, oh, I don't like Jeremy Corbyn very much. He looks weak, doesn't he? He, looks, he doesn't look like a leader. And then when the Labour, the good hearted Labour candidate who's already worn out their shoe leather from trudging up and down uh, up to people's doors says, well, what about this policy or that policy? The voter then says, well, I don't understand how you're going to afford all of that. And so you've got there a variety of things going on, which are interacting with each other on the one hand there's this revulsion at voting for, for brexit and then seeing your democratic mandate not being fulfilled even after three and a half years on the other hand there's a genuine unpopularity for jeremy corbyn which had set in sometime after the last election but which was now so deeply embedded that arguably labor was only ever going to get anywhere in this election despite jeremy corbyn not because of him Quite an odd situation for a political party to find itself in. You had this reduction of imagination on the point of view of 
both the press and voters about what exactly is possible within a democracy where we still print our own money and where interest rates are practically at zero. So you can afford to borrow for stuff, but instead of which they faced a, a political party that was making promises left, right and centre. I'm speaking with Guardian columnist Aditya Chakraborty. Now, Brexit, of course, that was a very large factor. And I read some of your your, your work and when you talked to um, the Brexiteers in, in some of the regions that used to vote Labour that didn't vote Labour this time. What did people expect from Brexit? It sounds like it, it was just a purely symbolic vote to them. It was all symbolic. They understood that, that Brexit was not going to be any kind of magic pill, but nonetheless, it was very important to them. How, how does it all figure? It's a really complicated one. The slogan, the Brexiteers won uh, the referendum with in 2016, was a really vague one. It simply said, take back control. Um, And it spoke to a kind of sense that the country was no longer working for the very people who voted for Brexit. And that could be a cultural thing. So if you're a relatively affluent uh, voter in in England's warm south, then you might think, well, culturally, the country's got away from me. There are, you know, there's too much immigration. There's too much focus on things like trans rights that I keep reading about in the press. What's all this stuff about safe spaces? And if you're in the kind of the rust belt of England, which also voted for Brexit, you might think, well, why is my mum waiting so long to have her hip replacement under our NHS? Why is my daughter unable to get a job anywhere commensurate with a university degree that she's ended up to her eyes in debt getting? Why, when I ring up about my water bill, do I end up speaking to a call centre on the other side of the world and they can't help me anyway? And I'll give you like a kind of representative scene, if you like, in the run up to the Brexit referendum to show you exactly how bound up it was with a complex of other factors. I remember going to a a very small ex-mining village in South Wales and pulled up outside this vast building that towered over these tiny houses like some kind of cathedral and that was the mining institute that just a hundred years ago had been built by miners out of their own money so they hadn't relied upon the state to build it they'd built it off their own subscriptions and it was covered as you got up to it it was all the windows were covered in sticker stickers that were in that Brussels blue colour that denotes that the EU had given a load of funding. Because 10 years ago, when the Mining Institute had fallen into dereliction, it was Brussels that paid the money for it to be overhauled. And I go inside, and there's this shaven-headed, barrel-chested man called Gareth, uh, who's uh, sitting down. And he plainly does not like the cut of my jib. You know, here's this Asian guy up from London from a posh paper, posh lefty newspaper, What's he want from me? And when we talked about Brexit, first of all, he made it absolutely clear, like nearly everyone else I spoke to, that he was voting for Brexit. And when I asked him why, he said, well, we don't own anything more in this country, do we? We don't own the water. We don't own the rails. We don't own the telecoms. We don't have any major employers that that are British anymore. Everything is owned by outside forces. And I said to him, look, I sympathise with a lot of what you've just said. But how do you think voting for Brexit is going to solve any of what you've just said? And he said, it's not, is it? But it's too late to pull it back now. I've always remembered that conversation because it sums up so much of the nihilism that runs through Britain in this decade. And so much, I think, of what's run through this election campaign as well, in the sense that 
you're talking in the Labour heartlands, in the kind of the Rust Belt area, you're talking to voters who have been taken for granted by the Labour Party for decades, who've seen their mines and their manufacturing, their steelworks and their shipbuilding disappear. And the only thing that's really replaced them has been really easy work, warehouses, call centres, care work, temporary contracts, no real commitment to any hours, zero hour contracts, really low wages, bullying bosses. Um, and the typical scenario for, for work like that is you look at your iPhone or your smartphone in the morning to see if you've got a shift or not. And that tells you how much money you'll be getting by the end of the week as well. That's it. Everything has become so privatised that you no longer have any sense of collective identity. And then you have this one vote that is, that is very clear, Brexit, yes or no, in or out. And you vote for yes, you say we're out. And even, even then, that doesn't get expressed. And the tragedy of the situation that I'm, I suppose I'm trying to paint for you, Doug, is that Gareth would have voted Labour for his entire life up to a certain point, And then he would have tuned out politics altogether. And the sort of demands he's making, if you listen to him, they're not reactionary demands necessarily. There's a, there's a very good reason to believe that a left-wing party could have responded to that. And to some extent, Jeremy Corbyn's party did try and respond to that, especially in its first couple of years. But gradually, bit by bit, especially in the last couple of years, the left of the Labour Party, which has run that party, succumbed more and more into self-indulgence. And self-indulgence in terms of policies, self-indulgence in terms of trying to explain those policies, and self-indulgence in trying to explain what those policies might mean to something like Gareth in South Wales. Now, of course, uh, Brexit will certainly not solve any of the problems that Gary was complaining about. Uh, it may make them worse. Uh, and now they've given a mandate to this posh Tory Etonian, who is probably going to make their lives worse as well. So where is this going to end up? I think it's worth just sketching out for the listeners the kind of character Boris Johnson, our new prime minister, who has a stonking majority to do whatever he wants with, what kind of person he is. And I'm just going to rely upon public record about him. I'm not going to say anything that's said about him privately. He's been sacked from two jobs, one in journalism, one in politics for lying. Uh, he has a, a long career as one of Britain's most highly paid columnists before he went into politics. In his newspaper columns, uh, he's referred to black people as being pickaninnies with watermelon smiles. He's referred to gay people as tank-topped bumboys. He's referred to Muslim women as uh, in, in full burqa, as being dressed like bank robbers or walking letterboxes. He famously supported the Brexit campaign. And, and later on, it came out that actually he'd written two columns, one in which he came out in favour of the Brexit campaign and one which he didn't submit to his editor, in which he came out against it. He's ultimately the most flexible, malleable, pernicious political force I've seen in Britain in my working adult life, in that he's able to be your smiling, gurning, joking, blonde mate at one minute, a complete shambles, you can't even tuck in his own shirt. And on the other hand, he's capable to make arguments about why London should be more receptive to billionaires, why we should protect our billionaires as if they're an endangered species. He's written newspaper columns like this. He's boasted about how far he's willing to protect bankers. Uh, in the aftermath of a financial crash. 
Now, my guess is that he will uh, be making a great deal of the fact that he is somehow marching to Labour strongholds in the deindustrialized North. And what he will do effectively say, right, right, number one, by the end of next month, Britain will be out of the EU. So there's your Brexit, got it done. Never mind about all the trade deals that we'll then have to strike and how long they'll take and how tortuous they'll be and what kind of rights we'll have to give up as a result of those trade deals. We won't talk about those, but I've got Brexit done. That was his one election strategy. Number two, I expect him to go around doing a particular kind of venal uh, Keynesianism where he marches into a seat that voted for him in, say, Blythe on the nor- in the northeast of England and says, uh, well, because I know Brexit might be a bit rough for, for you, uh, uh, a town that's, that's still got some manufacturing and re- relies upon a global supply chain, I'm going to give you £20 million just for this seat and we'll call it a transformation fund. And number three, he will pump money into our healthcare system because he knows that's the one point upon which the Conservatives has always been vulnerable uh, to Labour attacks, that they don't care about the NHS. The NHS is the closest thing that Britain gets to a secular religion. It's one of the things that everyone of, e- of any political persuasion has to say in public that they support. Now, Boris Johnson has in the past called for the privatisation of uh, our healthcare system. You will not hear a word of that from him for the next few years, if he's wise. Instead, he'll put money into it. But there are things he won't put money into. He won't put money into our social security system, which has already been knocked down to its bare bones for anyone of working age, so that people with disabilities who are near death, and there are lots and lots of recorded uh, cases of this, that people near death are being told by government officials, state officials, that they are fit for work and that they will not get any more benefits until they start working. He will not put any more money into various bits uh, of local government, which run most of our pub- public realm now for, for, for the average British citizen. He won't put very much money into salaries for public servants either. So you will have headlines about how Boris is amazing and how he's done this thing that Labour Party just wish they could do. But you'll get very little about the kind of the, the stuff that actually keeps the country ticking over. It sounds like a very grim future. After 2016 Brexit referendum, I got a phone call the next morning. Uh, from a mate of mine who's got slightly different politics than me, but is smart as a whip. And the first thing he said to me was, where are you emigrating to? After this election, 2019, the number of messages I received from people who are saying, I'm going to go to Scotland. I might go to Barcelona because at least it won't be like here. Seriously, we are facing the kind of prospect that I think for a generation of left-wing activists, they never imagined. One of the things that's been really curious to see about the Labour Party, and in many ways really nice to see, has been to see a 70-year-old man who's got a long history of campaigning against uh, bad things, such as apartheid in South Africa, being supported by uh, people who are largely under 30, who have come from anti-austerity movements, who come from housing movements, who come from climate change movements. And they've all piled in to this boring old parliamentary party that, frankly, up until 2010, looked like it was just a machine. And they've turned it into something different, something livelier, that for all its flaws, at least had energy and inventiveness about it. My big worry is what happens to that fragile coalition 
between the activists, between the base and leadership over the next few years? Because power is the most important solvent in politics and Labour Party is going to be nowhere near power for for a long time to come. That was Aditya Chakraborty, a columnist and senior economic commentator for The Guardian. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Music Scene by The Fall, which was a request from Aditya Chakraborty. First time I've ever had a guest make a musical request. Next, Millennial Socialism, as explained by a Millennial Socialist. Nathan Robinson founded Current Affairs magazine in 2015. Based in New Orleans, it lives in both print and digital media, and is lively, attractive, smart, and funny. Nathan, an amazingly prolific writer, he can compose a 3,000-word article in the time it takes some of us to post a tweet, is just out with Why You Should Be a Socialist. Published by All Points Books, its title is a perfect introduction to its contents. Nathan Robinson. You're, what, 30? 30, yes. The prime socialist age group. Uh, What was your personal story? How did you become a socialist? In the book, I talk a little bit about how a lot of us, before we identify ourselves as socialists, are just people who have looked at the world and been discomforted and angry and uh, failed to find satisfactory answers to a lot of our basic questions. So I think for a lot of my life, I was just that person. Well, a lot of people then, you know, do that and discover religion or... Yes. And then some of us are fortunate enough to have uh, friends in high school who hand us a book by Noam Chomsky and goes, like, this will help explain the world to you. And I, you know, I, t- I took some classes in college and uh, I took a class called Marxism versus Anarchism and I, that introduced me to the fact that socialism was something rich, something that had had many, many intra-socialist debates about, about the meaning of the creed. And that says, so, you know, socialism was something that, uh, that had a, a really great a, a tradition that we could be proud of, right? It had so, so many incredible people that, um, uh, you know, the more I read in college and, you, found, you know, you find the writings of Helen Keller where she says, like, I may be blind and deaf, but I'm not blind and deaf, right? I understand how capitalism works. I understand injustice and... and um, and, you know, you have the wonderful socialists in America and you have, you know, it really is something to be to be proud of. And so I sort of placed myself in that tradition. I used to call myself an anarchist because I liked the effect it had on people. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you publish material sympathetic to anarchists. Yeah, and I still do, right? And I, because, because I came to it from Chomsky and because I like the kind of... I like anarchism as an analytic approach, which is I like the fact that it questions everything and questions every hierarchy. And it makes it impractical as a political program, right? But I like it as a, as a starting standpoint. 
the Bernie campaign in 2015-2016 made a lot of us have to think very seriously about what a practical democratic socialist politics would be like. But he injected the word into American politics in yeah. a way that it hadn't been in right. decades, right? Right. Because even Occupy, which is in some ways a forerunner of the millennial socialist, I, I didn't hear that word socialist very much. No, no, no. It was um, lonely to be a socialist around Occupy. I can speak from experience. Oh, yeah. You were also born, I guess, just before the Soviet Union collapsed. Did that have any bearing on your notion of the word socialist? No, never at all. I mean, I think, I think for most of us, it's non-existent, right? The Cold War is almost irre- irrelevant. It's interesting that for so many older people, it so, it so defines their association with the term, uh, when for the rest of us, you know, we sort of go back to the original writings of often 19th century socialists, apply the analysis, develop the political program, and that's it. <laughs> but as you note in the book, there's a rich American tradition of socialism, which is largely forgotten by a lot of people. It's so true. What strands are you picking on there? The American socialist tradition is one that I think there are sort of arguments among socialists as to how socialist various American socialists were, because there was, of course, the sewer socialist movement that took over a bunch of city councils and and, uh, had uh, mayors and state legislators. And, of course, even at the time, you had socialists saying, well, that's just reformism. That's not real socialism. It's true that in the United States, you never had quite the kind of robust mass socialist movement that you had in European countries, but you did have... Or even a labor or social democratic party, yeah. But you did have a socialist party that accomplished quite a lot. I mean, they had a thousand seats around the country in 1906, 1907. And also, like American socialism, um, to the extent that they had victories, they were all things that that were good. I mean, they were all pushing workplace safety regulations, the eight-hour day, you know, Milwaukee under the socialists was voted the best governed city uh, in the country. Bernie Sanders in Burlington was, uh, you know, was considered quite well run. He was a good mayor. People look back on him fondly. So this is the, of course, the issue. You mentioned this. This is the issue that happens anytime any socialists get together. What do you mean by the word? You know, there are all these other associated words. There's democratic socialism. Yeah. There's social democracy. So yeah. sort this all out. How do you, when you reveal us, you, oh, what you mean by your Well, the one thing I've done actually is I've been doing a lot of research by talking to a lot of people in the DSA around the country. I've been interviewing people and I always ask them what they mean by socialism. One reason that I'm reluctant, one reason I always push back on the, on the question is because the history of socialism is in part an argument over what socialism means. Some people will just give you a standard answer, which is that it's collective ownership of the means of production. But it's clearly more than that, isn't it? Because, you know, you can have collective ownership and still have some kinds of injustice, but that doesn't answer all of the questions. There's a feminist component, there's an anti-racist component that doesn't quite come out in the, in the narrow definition. And of course you have, as I say, anarchist socialists and you have people who, who believe that state power can accomplish more. The core that I sort of identify is the, the, every socialist has a hatred of the ruling class, and a, and a hatred of the idea of a society that is divided into a large number of non-owning working people and a small number of owning people who give the orders and own the stuff. And then there's an emotional core to it too, disgust and discomfort with injustice and brutality. 
really are where a lot of people start from before they get to theory, before they get to a deep understanding of the workings of capitalism. Well, and a revulsion from this this world of competitive individualism and and a longing for something that's more cooperative and egalitarian. Yeah, I, and and I think that longing and that that instinct starts way before the actual socialist philosophy is developed. And for a lot of people in the DSA, right, a lot of people who have come in since 2016 in the big wave, their socialism is not that well defined. And they wouldn't necessarily answer, you know, use the phrase means of production. But I think they're getting there, and the reason they, and, but they they all share that same kind of instinct, even when they can't define it, and. I really, really reject the idea that if people have, if people struggle to say what they mean, they don't understand or that they ill-informed. I don't think it is that because I think I, they understand very well on a deep level and on an emotional level, and then we sort of try and develop the intellectual tools that are necessary to sort of precisely identify what is going on that we feel so deeply. I've been impressed by my comrades in the Brooklyn DSA by people. They're mostly pretty young. A lot of people don't know all that much, but they're really eager to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. Reading groups and discussion groups and you know, conversation. There's a real intensity, a, a hunger for how, like, how yeah. to figure out this world yeah. and how it might be made better. And that's just really moving to me to yeah. see that kind of intellectual curiosity merged with political ambition. I haven't seen that. From what I heard, the early 60s were like that in a lot of ways. But, you know, we, it's been a long time since we saw that. Well, you spent a lot of time in the real political wilderness, right? Which is being the only socialist in the room in yes. the 80s and 90s, right? Yeah, it was very weird. My old late friend, uh, Joanne Landy, told me once sometime in the late 90s, I've been a socialist my whole life and I'm embarrassed to say the word out loud. I just don't feel that anymore. It's a remarkable transformation. And even the sort of most popular figures of the American left during that time were not open socialists, right? I mean, well, like Ralph Nader or like Michael Moore or someone. You know, not, didn't right. Embrace that. But there's also a lack of interest in a lot of those issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't want to talk about class. They didn't want to talk about production. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of concern about consumption mm-hmm. and inequality, but there was not really a deep interest in the structure of production and how that related to the structure mm-hmm. of society. Mm-hmm. It was just not on the table. Mm-hmm. And now it is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, Occupy uh, was, was important to that. Like, it put that idea of the 1%. Mm-hmm. You know, things not, are more complicated than that. Right. Cause there's the, but still, the, the having that focus and, yeah. is really, yeah, the upper middle class. <laughs> they are a problem. Uh, but you know, that, that focus on that owning class, which hadn't, we hadn't seen in right. American politics in decades. And that is so key to it because it also shows you the real dividing line between say, someone like Elizabeth Warren and someone like Bernie Sanders, right? Which is, as Amy Goodman asked Elizabeth Warren, the question, should, you know, should billionaires exist? And she goes, well, of course. <laughs> if you do something and people give you a billion dollars, what's, what's wrong with that? And that is the real test of whether someone is a socialist or not, right? And that's a, that's a huge dividing line. It's basic, basically, that question is, should there be a ruling class? <laughs> should there be some people who own vastly, vastly more and have vastly, vastly more power than other people. And if you're on the left, the real economic left, your instinctive answer is exactly the opposite. I'm speaking with Nathan Robinson, author of Why You Should Be a Socialist from All Points Books. So you and, and your cohort came of age uh, in the middle of uh, the Great Recession, the financial crisis yeah. 2008. How much of an influence did that have on your thinking? Yeah, so much because we all looked around us and we saw friends who were dropping out of college because they couldn't afford it. We saw people who were not just moving back home, but having their parents lose their homes. And 
it really did expose so much of the uh, myths of American capitalism as, as just, just cruel lies. Not just myths, but really, really cruel. It makes it completely impossible to believe in any conception of merit or just desserts or the American dream. And so, so many of us grew up kind of cynical, and Occupy was, was, was very cynical in many ways, and even thought that political action was kind of impossible because um, everything was a lie. Politics was a lie. You could never trust an elected official. You could never, you know, every movement. You just create your alternative reality in this park. But like, yeah. the ambition beyond that park was murky. It was a sense that it was all we could do. All you could do was plant your flag and say, I'm staying here till they drag me away. What else is there? And it's true, you, we needed to have kind of a demonstration that something else was possible because it wasn't clear at that point. Jacobin came around in 2010, burning out till 2015, so it, it took time for things to really come together as a, you know, we're a left, we have a political program, we can contest elections, we can have, we can have plans, we can have a vision. I understand why it was, it was so bleak and cynical at that moment. How do we get from here to there? Well, I'm going to list a couple of problems. One, of course, you know, all the institutions of American capitalism are so overwhelming. Yeah. But then also the consciousness that uh, not merely centuries of capitalism have created, but you know, several decades of neoliberalism created, which is one of self-reliance. You know, you're just responsible for yourself, and the collective action is not possible. It's really hard to counter that that mm-hmm. sense of passivity and uh, futility. So. What's your idea of how to get to this socialist future? That's a question that is continuing to be worked out. On this sort of this, this, this individualism idea, this, this real creeping, this ethic that, you know, if I pursue my self-interest and you pursue yours, the, the collective good will somehow be served. We can get past that. And I, it's, it's funny, I was thinking uh, last night about the, uh, you've had the phrase like, uh, feminism is the radical idea that women are people. I like that because it is actually a radical idea in that if you took it seriously, it would require a radical transformation of existing relationships. Socialism is kind of the radical idea that other people's lives matter, which doesn't sound radical, but when you actually think, well, do other people's lives matter? Well, the US foreign policy is entirely based on the premise that other people's lives don't matter. So you know, it would look very, very different. Um, well, there's that phrase that Bernie uses at the rally in Queens. Are yes. you willing to fight for well, someone else? Yes. That was exactly what I was going to bring up. And you know, there's an echo in there of Eugene Debs, right? Which is, while there's a lower class, I am in it. And while there's a soul in prison, I'm not free. It's the ethic of solidarity. And I talk a lot here about, about the, that building on that feeling of solidarity, which is my freedom is linked to what happens to other people. The Debs quote is really radical, which is while there's a soul in prison, I'm not looking until we have prison abolition, I can't feel free. And I think a lot of young socialists really do feel that way. They feel sort of bound up with other people's struggles. That's a starting point for how we can build a kind of socialist ethic. The project of actually making it happen, well, at least it's a a much more viable question than it was in 1998. (laughs) My answer is I'm trying to build a left media institution that speaks to non-left people and explains left ideas. This book is called Why You Should Be a Socialist. The intended audience for this book is like people who are not necessarily socialists, right? Right. This is like for... It's not why you are a socialist. A primer and a conversion tract. It's not for you. I am an evangelical socialist. I want to spread the good news. 
And so I think many socialists will be, you know, this is simplistic, this is moralistic. I accept that I think a lot of the criticisms that socialists would make of this book are probably true. But we're not the intended audience. But you're not really the intended audience. What I kind of want to do is to soften non-apolitical people and liberals up on socialism uh, so that then they can have other conversations with socialists. What is this socialism thing I keep hearing about? Yeah. (laughs) I want them not to hate it and not to react instinctively against it. What do you find people react to, either positively or negatively, in your message? A lot of us take lessons from what, what Bernie is doing. He's magnificent at pointing at the problems in people's lives and going, you know that the socialists are the only ones with an explanation for that and the only ones with a solution for that. Do you accept the facts of climate change? If you do, the Democratic Party, I mean, Jacobin had a great article, uh, the, the Democrats are all climate deniers because they don't act as if the climate change is a serious problem. And even Vox said, like, the Green New Deal is the first thing approaching a serious attempt to deal with climate change. And the beautiful thing that Bernie does is he gets away from all the crap all the Trump White House uh, court drama and zeroes in on the problems in people's lives, on material conditions and on real world uh, possible solutions that sound plausible. One of the things I find so impressive about Sanders is, you know, he's been on the left for very many decades, but he knows how to talk to the general public and he knows just how radical to be under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. There's really an immense talent that he's demonstrating there. Anyone else that uh, you think uh, in public life who's, who's got that skill? AOC is very talented. Have you seen her live? Yeah. She's, she's a very good speech player. I watched her on the campaign trail with Abdul El Sayed in Michigan. Abdul's an amazing speaker, but she was, if anything, uh, better. I mean, I don't know about the speaking to people one-on-one in the, in the, in the way that Bernie does. The DSA convention that I went to, we, we had lots of socialist elected officials from around the country. And many of them had this. Many of them were talking about how they were able to convince non-socialists through these kind of tactics, through typical organizing tactics. So there are lots of, lots of, the, lots of the DSA people who've managed to get elected have gotten elected precisely because they have this kind of thing. It's something that we're working on. I work on it all the time. I've learned a lot from Jacobin, right? Our little magazine wouldn't exist if it weren't for Jacobin. They've done a phenomenal job of taking left ideas and putting them in clear language, explaining, making arguments that can be understood, applying left analysis to contemporary events so that you can explain the news to you and what it means. And this book is my attempt to go one step further and say, you know, so it's an experiment. I don't know if it's going to work or if I'm going to only get, a, only get socialists reading it. The headline or signature policy proposals of Sanders and a lot of people in DSA, Medicare for all, free college tuition, they're good things in themselves. But how do they relate to the project of building towards socialism? Yeah. Are they stepping stones? Or well, yeah. Are they, yeah. Well, how I do mean, you see that, these, the, these short-term goals with a longer-term goal? They make more socialized institutions, like on the spectrum of more to less socialized. Single payer is not uh, even socialized medicine. It's not an NHS. And so the ideal for socialists would be to have a national health program, right? Something that we owned in common. A library is a socialized institution that we all own it in common and everything is free at the point of use to people. But it's not a socialist economy so but these things are one each one is one step closer free college does make it so that public colleges is what you really want you want um but free open public colleges like free public high schools are a 
socialized institution. They are something that we all own in common that, that operates for the benefit of us all. The current consensus, to the extent that there is one among the new left socialist movement, is that we try one by one by one to take institutions and decommodify things and, and move them bit by bit, which is why it's acceptable to talk about Nordic countries, even though, well, that's not really socialism. They are certainly countries with more socialized institutions than... I don't know. Sometimes I think if I woke up and the U.S. had the Swedish welfare state, it would be like almost revolutionary. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, it is very, very different. It's definitely worth <laughs> worth aspiring to. It's not, it's not something to sniff at. And in fact, yeah, as you say, often it is dismissed just how different uh, those, those countries are. Capitalists don't want you to... Uh, they want to go, no, it's the same. You already have basically that. You have basically that. So, you know, why, why change anything? We already have it, and it works. Yeah, they spend 20% of GDP on social protection. <laughs> so, you know, we don't do anything like that. I'm speaking with Nathan Robinson, author of Why You Should Be a Socialist from All Points Books. Yeah, that, that how to get there problem. How much of it do you see as an electoral issue or how much, you know, building power outside the electoral realm, unions? I mean, what, what are the institutions and the processes that are going to get us from here to there? I mean, this is all experimental, right? Every, the DSA is trying to work out this problem right now in practice, right? So it's trying to get as many people elected as possible. And because they're a federated organization with you know, 200 chapters or whatever, different chapters can try different ways of approaching this. Um, some are more electoral-focused. Our one in New Orleans can't be really electoral-focused because the local political system is so closed that they don't really see much of a possibility. Although they like just even have, at like the city council level, is it that? They don't see it as possible right now, but it's something that they they're debating, right? Yeah. Is there is there an opening for us? Is this the best use of our resources? They actually just ran someone for agriculture commissioner who got like 200,000 votes, which was impressive for a socialist. But of course, union organizing is extremely difficult as well. So in a situation where employers essentially hold all the cards at the moment. It's one of the highest incarceration rates in the country too, right? Or the uh, highest? Oh, it's the, I think it's the highest. Yeah, Louisiana, yeah. yeah. For example, like I talked to people in Chicago about how they got their city councilors, right? The six DSA people on the on the Chicago Board of Aldermen. You know, they said, well, because we have a we're a labor town and we have all these other groups that we can work with that aren't socialist, but uh, we were able to partner with them. New Orleans doesn't quite have that, right? Chicago, they always cite the the teachers union, the strong teachers union that has successfully taken taken on the city. New Orleans, all the schools are charterized, right? There is no teachers union. So you don't you can't you don't have those kind of local groups that you that you can partner with. So you really have to you know, figure out something else. Yeah, well, there's just there's slur against DSA people that they're all the gentrifying districts, right? That's mm-hmm. the, the slur against AOC. But it does seem like a pretty uphill climb in in a lot of the south and parts of the heartland, right? Although they've gotten people elected in surprising places, South Fulton, Georgia, and the one in North Dakota, Ruth Buffalo got elected to the state legislature in, in North Dakota, Pennsylvania. They got they got a couple people, so they've managed to pull off some things in surprising places. I don't quite accept the um, Pelosi really wants to convince us that like you, know, you can win in Queens, but you can't win anywhere else. Like Queens is marginal and insignificant to that point of view too. So when I was doing my interviews for the DSA article I wrote for New, the New Republic in February, I talked to one person and I asked her, like, what are, what are your thoughts about the long-term strategy for DSA? And she says, oh, I'm not sure we have a long-term. Uh, you know, it's just because of climate. That she just seems averse to thinking about the long-term because there is no future, basically. And I found several other people who, who shared that point yeah. of view. 
Building the socialist project requires at least some faith in the possibility for the future. Where do you stand on that? Is there hope for the future? Well, I stay away from the word hope, because hope is kind of a prediction, and also Barack Obama kind of ruined the word, right? Made it meaningless. I think that that feeling of futurelessness is a a serious problem, right? Because if you're trying to convince someone to join a political project, but you also think that it's doomed, it's very difficult to, to sell them on why they should be part of your movement. I talk in the book about what I see as the importance of utopias, the importance of being able to imagine a that a better world is in fact. You quote Wild, right? A map of that utopia is not worth looking. Utopia is not worth looking at, and the feeling that you know we have to have something to aspire to. You have to have some sense of, of of what this is all building towards that you believe in. And I think socialists historically, like the, one of the central characteristics is even when they haven't considered themselves utopians, they have always had this strong sense that there is a huge gap between what exists and what could be. And human potential is not is being squandered and that, and that things don't need to be this way as well as shouldn't be this way. I do worry about fatalism. Is that Jameson, who said, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah. That's a serious problem, right? Because yeah. we need to imagine the end of capitalism. I sort of encourage people very strongly to try and do that even when it's really, really hard. I talk about determination more than hope, right? Which is the sense that, well, you don't actually know what's possible. So many things seem impossible until they're done. But you just have to have a real serious vision. Five years ago, no one could have imagined we would be having this conversation. Yeah, exactly. There have been massive changes. Even with, you know, we're talking the night after uh, Labour's colossal defeat in Britain. But the very fact that you had a socialist leading the Labour Party and in 2017 election, they did very well, was extraordinary. This is the beginning. It's a long struggle. The goalposts are always being moved as soon as we advance. So like as soon as Bernie nearly got the nomination, the press started asking, well, why aren't more of Bernie's endorsed candidates winning? Why are only a third of, of uh, the Our Revolution candidates winning? And you go, we never win. <laughs> right. A third is pretty good, <laughs> what are you really. talking about? <laughs> we get like 2% of the vote, right? And now we're actually, you know, getting into public office and people are like, wow, DSA only has 40 people around the country. How many did we have before? Zero. So, so it's, it's a long project. We're at the beginning. That was Nathan Robinson, editor-in-chief of Current Affairs magazine and author of Why You Should Be a Socialist from All Points Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, The Internationale, performed by Stefan Grappelli. Till next week, bye. <laughs>